Acts chapter 1. If you're our guest, again, so glad that you're here. This is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible. If you don't have a copy, we do have copies in the lobby. You can feel free to run and grab one and take that as a gift uh, from us to you. You can also just pull out your mobile device and punch in Acts 1 ESV. That's the version we'll be using. You can follow along with us there. Acts 1 verses 12 through 26, the translator heading reads, Matthias chosen to replace Judas. As you find your place, let me get us up to speed. Our, our author, Luke, has already written that after rising from the dead and revealing himself to his disciples, Jesus, here's what he did, verse 4, Jesus ordered his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which was to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then he gathered them together outside of Jerusalem, spoke to them again of the coming of the Spirit, and commissioned them as his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then he literally, not figuratively, literally rose into the sky and disappeared behind a cloud. So we find ourselves this morning with the disciples standing on a hillside outside of Jerusalem. No Jesus and no promised Holy Spirit, and one instruction from their risen Lord. Wait in Jerusalem. What will they do while they wait? Well, let's find out. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. I'll read and then pray. Acts 1 verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And Peter said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Verse 17, For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Peter again, verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship 
from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The very words of God, would you join me in a brief prayer for understanding? Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. These are your words given to us. I ask that your spirit would powerfully work in our minds and in our hearts to both understand and treasure the words on this page. May we understand them truly, cherish them deeply, and apply them to our lives liberally for your glory, for the good of our lives, and for the spread of the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For over six years, my wife and I photographed weddings together. And after being at approximately 150 of them, you learn some painful things about weddings. Sorry to those of you about to get married. At the top of the list for me is that every wedding DJ plays all the same songs, okay? It is so rare to find a unique wedding playlist. DJs seem to just recycle the same tunes that everyone expects to hear and that will get guests on the dance floor. Perhaps there's no wedding song more iconic and more overplayed than Don't Stop Believin' by Journey. You can already hear it in your head, can't you? Sorry. We sang all these great songs and now you've got Don't Stop Believin' in your head. The song, of course, tells of two strangers, right? A small town girl and a city boy born and raised in South Detroit. There is no South Detroit, by the way. Made that up for the song because it sounded good. They meet on a midnight train going anywhere. They're leaving their old lives behind in hopes of finding new ones. Now, after listening to this song so many times, I couldn't help but wonder why. After 40 years, that's how old the song is. After 40 years, this song just won't go away. Why do people love belting out, don't stop believing, regardless of their religious persuasion? Here's what I think. Hot take. <laughs> Optimism. Okay? It's built into us. We're all waiting for something better, and it's been ingrained in us that we have to keep believing that it'll come. Just listen to your heart and believe in yourself and good things will come your way, right? A very modern sentiment, modern philosophy for you. That, in fact, is the inspiration for the song. The keyboardist who wrote it, Jonathan Cain, he got the famous chorus line from his dad. When he was struggling to make it as a musician in L.A., his dad would tell him over the phone, don't stop believing or you're done, dude. Some solid fatherly advice. <laughs> don't stop believing or you're done, dude made that into a song. The reason that resonates with us all so deeply is that we're all waiting. We're all waiting. Waiting is a regular feature of life. Waiting is, in fact, something God has designed for us, but we don't like it. Often feels like something He's inflicting upon us. Oh, my poor kids know something about this because of me. They'll, they'll often ask me for something to eat or drink or for me to come play with them, and I'll say something like, sure, I'll be right there. And it often takes me quite 
a lot longer than right there. <laughs> My dear wife gently reminds me that I shouldn't keep them waiting. I made a promise and I need to keep it. She's right. Why would he make me wait? My poor kids ask. And if you're a Christian, you will at times pose the same question of, of God. Why would he make me wait? Here in Acts chapter 1, the disciples have been ordered to wait. They have no other instructions at the moment. Wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. Jesus said it would happen not many days from now. Just kind of like me saying, I'll be right there. What does that mean? Not many days from now. They don't know how long that'll be. And so they're now living in the space between promise and fulfillment. Same is true for us. We're living in the space between promise and fulfillment, which means we're waiting. And what we do while we wait reveals a lot about us. Just as it does about these first century disciples. Look, we don't have to enjoy waiting, okay? We don't have to enjoy waiting, but here's what we do need to grasp. Waiting for God is good for us. Waiting for God is good for us. Very good for us. Let me show you this from our passage. Just two points this morning. Why is waiting for God good for us? Point number one, when we wait, God reminds us to major on the majors. When we wait, God reminds us to major on the majors. After being scolded by the angels in verse 11 who asked them, why are you standing there looking at the sky? The disciples take a three-quarter of a mile walk. That's what a Sabbath day journey was in verse 12, if you're wondering about three-quarters of a mile back to Jerusalem to a large second-floor room where they've been staying, and all remaining 11 disciples are there. We got the official list of names right there in verse 13 with just one name conspicuously absent, Judas the betrayer, and we'll get to him a little bit later. But verse 14 is really the big revealing verse. What are these disciples going to do while they wait for Jesus to fulfill his promise? Verse 14, look there again. All these, Luke records, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. We get a sweet note tagged on there that Mary is still there with them, Jesus' mom, and his brothers who were antagonistic to Jesus at the beginning have joined the disciples. With one accord is one word in the original Greek, and the definition is so rich that I just want to read it to you. Here's what that word, with one accord, means. Here's what one scholar writes. This word denotes the inner unity of a group of people engaged in an externally similar action. Inner unity of a group of people engaged in an externally similar action. It can thus be rendered, he writes, with one mind. With one mind. The first thing these disciples do when Jesus leaves them is to cling to one another. That's what they do. They cling to one another. They're together physically, right? They're in the same room. They're together. They're together physically. They're together spiritually with one accord. There's something deeper here than just being in the same place at the same time. We know it. It's an overused Christian word. This is fellowship. The union of heart and mind in faith in Jesus Christ. Christ is gone. 
Christ is gone. Can you imagine how challenging that was for them? Christ is gone, but they have each other. They have each other. So what do they do? How do they express that unity? Well, they devote themselves to prayer. This was a days-long prayer meeting. There were approximately 10 days between the ascension from the last paragraph and Pentecost, which is chapter 2, coming next. 10 days. This is a 10 days long prayer meeting. And the word devoting themselves to it is persistence. They spent 10 days in earnest prayer, turning their faces to God, thanking Him, certainly, casting themselves upon His care, asking Him for wisdom, strength, and endurance, praying for the needs of one another. You're starting to see why I've said that waiting reminds us to major on the majors. In the absence of other instructions from God, their instinct is fellowship and prayer. Get close to one another and get close to God. But there's one more major. Fellowship, prayer. What's the third one? Verse 15. In those days, it says, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, verse 16, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And skip down to verse 20. Peter quotes from the Psalms. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. You might think about making that your life verse. Quote from Psalm 69, 25. And let another take his office. Quote from Psalm 109, verse 8. Big reveal. Besides fellowship and prayer, what else do they do while they wait? They seek to wisely apply the scriptures. Even the casting of lots, which I know you all think that 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 verse means that after this you can go down to the casino and gamble. Uh, Maybe some of you were thinking that. If so, no, don't do that. The casting of lots is part of them trying to apply the scriptures. Casting lots was a common practice throughout the Old Testament for discerning God's will in big decisions pertaining to the leadership of God's people. There's a pattern here. So they're making a good faith attempt to apply the scriptures to their current situation. Fellowship, prayer, scripture. That's what they do in the absence of instructions from God. Look, nobody had to tell them to do these things. They knew to do them or had an instinct to do them. It's what mature believers do. They, they major on the majors when the path ahead is unclear. Major on the majors when the path ahead is unclear. When the path ahead for you or I is unclear, which means God is clearly saying, wait, we should major on the majors. Are you disappointed to hear that? It's okay if you are. (laughs) I mean, if you sat down with me in my office and said, Dustin, I am really tired of waiting for a spouse. What should I do? And I leaned forward in my chair. And I said, okay, I got the perfect plan for you. Okay, here's what you do. Spend time with other Christians, pray, read your Bible, and wait. Would you slap me? <laughs> you might. <laughs> I wouldn't say that to you. I, only a tactless pastor would say that to somebody. But look, just to, I'll expose Mike and I. Underneath all of our counsel for you is basically those things. <laughs> 
okay? That's the example that the disciples leave us here. They didn't do nothing, right? They didn't do nothing, but they did the things that faithful believers have always done. When God calls us to wait, we often think there's something that we could do that would make things go faster, right? Now, we know here in this narrative, the disciples couldn't do anything to make God move faster on what he was about to do. He knew what he was going to do and when, and they just had to wait around for it. Now, there may be some situations, I suppose, where that's true, that you could somehow make God move faster. <laughs> I don't know what those situations are, but that's normally not the case. Usually, we're waiting for God. He's not waiting for us. We're waiting for God. It's part of our creatureliness. He's in charge, and we're not. We're waiting for God. He's not waiting for us, and while he makes us wait, we can assume that one of the things he is doing, just one of the things he is doing, is reminding us how good a basic Christianity really is. I mean, fellowship. It's a throwaway word at this point, but, but may it not be for us. Fellowship with other Christians is a gift from God, won for us by the death of Jesus. Prayer is a privilege granted by God through the sacrifice and ongoing mediation of Jesus, our great high priest. Scripture is the voice of God speaking to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Growth as a Christian is simply getting a stronger grasp on the basics of our faith. Christianity is mastering the basics, majoring on the majors. So let me ask you, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? I'm sure there's something could be outside of you job, spouse, children, answers from the doctor. Could be something inside of you, a change in your attitude or outlook or a change in your affections. While you wait on God to answer your prayers and desires, major on the majors. And don't fall into the trap of thinking that any of your days waiting are wasted even the most mundane ones. Listen, listen to how Jerry Bridges puts this in his wonderful book, Trusting God, which I would commend to you. Jerry Bridges, every day, he writes, is important for us because it is a day ordained by God. If we are bored with life, there's something wrong with our concept of God and his involvement in our daily lives. Even the most dull and tedious days of our lives are ordained by God and ought to be used by us to glorify him. We live in the space between promise and fulfillment. We occupy that space. We're waiting, and while we wait, let's major on the majors. Let's keep mastering the basics and trust that God is working through every moment of our waiting, because he is. Point number two. When we wait... God reveals that his plan for us is bigger than us. His plan for us is bigger than us. Look with me again, verse 15. In those days, 
That is the days between the Ascension and Pentecost. Peter stood up among the brothers. And listen, fun Bible trivia fact for you. This is the first reference in the New Testament to Christians as brothers. Be the first of many. Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, which is about the size of a first century Jewish synagogue. And he said, verse 16, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Verse 17, For he, Judas, was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now after that brief explanation, we then get in verses 18 and 19 an aside about the end of Judas's life. It's probably in uh, parentheses there in your Bibles. Judas, of course, betrayed Jesus for silver and bought a field and then died a grisly death in that field. I'm not going to explain that to you. You can read it right there on the page, a grisly death. And there's some debate since uh, this account of Judas's death differs from the account given by Matthew in Matthew chapter 27. However, I'm fully persuaded, and I'm not alone in this, that the accounts actually fit together. Here's the important thing to note from verses 18 and 19 the condemnation of Judas's actions. That's really what Luke's after here. Luke, Luke calls the payment given to him the reward of his wickedness. And his recap makes it clear that God judged him swiftly and decisively. His death stands now as a warning to all of those who would betray the Savior. Now, if we go back to verse 17 for just a moment. Verse 17, he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in the ministry, especially after reading verses 18 and 19. Go back to that verse and think about that just for a moment. Think back to Jesus' earthly ministry. He regularly entrusted ministry to Judas, even though he knew what he would do. Well, we should marvel that Jesus would give such an unworthy man such a worthy position. Judas had a spot among the 12. The 12 men who were closest to Jesus Christ, he served with them. He made a significant contribution to their ministry, so much so that the remaining disciples feel the need to replace him. He left a real vacancy. That's the language of verse 17, numbered among us and allotted his share in this ministry. He had a significant role that he played. He needs to be replaced. Peter sees warrant in Scripture to replace him. He quotes those two different psalms I mentioned earlier. Verse 20, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And the field certainly fits that description. And let another take his office. Now in these two psalms, the psalmist is calling upon God to eliminate and replace those who had betrayed him. That's the context of those psalms. Very similar context to Acts chapter 1. A betrayer needs to be replaced. That's why those psalms are quoted. So they set two parameters for the man who can take this position. Parameter number one, he must have been with Jesus while Jesus was alive. Verse 21. So one of the men who accompanied, accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John. So the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. He must have been with Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry. And parameter number two, he must have seen Jesus after his resurrection. Verse 22. 
beginning with the baptism of John, until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with, with us. And this is an important phrase about what the apostles are there for. Must become with us a witness to his resurrection. The reason he needed to be with Jesus through his ministry and see Jesus after is that the apostles understood themselves to be witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were there to establish a new community who would be the worldwide witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would be the first ones to preach the gospel. They would be the ones to write new scripture. They would be the ones to lead the charge in spreading the gospel to the places where Christ had not yet been named, and they would be some of the first martyrs of the gospel. And they needed 12. So they cast lots, they pray, and the lot falls on Matthias, as we read in verse 26, and he becomes the 12th apostle. And then, you know what? We never hear from him again. John Stott summarizes where we're at very well here at the end of chapter 1. Here's what John Stott writes. The stage is now set for the day of Pentecost. The apostles have received Christ's commission and seen his ascension. The apostolic team is complete again, ready to be his chosen witnesses. Only one thing is missing, he writes. The Spirit has not yet come. Though the place left vacant by Judas has been filled by Matthias, the place left vacant by Jesus has not yet been filled by the Spirit. So we leave Luke's first chapter of Acts with the 120 waiting in Jerusalem, persevering in prayer with one heart and mind, poised, ready to fulfill Christ's command just as soon as he has fulfilled his promise. So with the 12 in place, everything's ready. But why do they need 12? And maybe a better question if you've read ahead. It doesn't even seem to matter because they end up having 13. Why the 12 here? Well, I already mentioned the practical need to replace Judas. He had a share in their ministry, and someone needed to take that over. In fact, if you remember back in the Gospels, he oversaw the money bag, which, questionable assignment. Uh, but God is doing something bigger here than just backfilling Judas's position. Jesus actually hinted at it in Luke chapter 22. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read this to you. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples. You are those who stayed with me in my trials, minus Judas. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and here, right here, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. A parallel between the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles. God is alerting the world right here. This is why the insistence on the 12, alerting the world that the group designated as his people is shifting from national Israel to a new community, the church, a global group of believers made up of Jews and Gentiles who would be the focus of his salvation, attention, and care. They would now be his light to the nation. Acts is a book of transitions, all right? You're going to feel this as we move through it. This is a book of transitions, and this is a huge one that we're, we're being set up for. The reason for the 12 apostles is to communicate that the church is the new Israel. 
which is precisely what the apostles are going to go on and explain in their preaching and their letters. Just wait for Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. That's why the 12 are so important in the bigger scheme of things. God is preparing the world for the birth of his church. Now, do you think these men had any clue that's what was happening? Maybe some inkling. But even Jesus' words from Luke 22 were probably pretty cryptic to them. Wait, we're going to judge the tribes of Israel? Would not have made clear sense to them. I mean, do you think, geez, shoot ahead in human history. Do you think they could have envisioned us here in Orange in 2022, worshiping the same Christ that they gave their lives for? Or the countless other Christians around the globe who've followed this crucified and risen Lord? Of, Of course not. What were they doing? Fellowship, prayer, applying the scriptures. They were simply doing what they believed God wanted them to do next. Replace Judas, and they did, and through it, God was revealing something much bigger. Now, you and I, of course, don't occupy the same transitional and foundational role as the 12 apostles did. But it's true that the grace that God shows to us is for a purpose much bigger than us. The grace God shows to us is for a purpose much bigger than us. The Apostle Paul is later going to write this in Ephesians 3, verse 10. He says, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities, not on earth, but in the heavenly places. God is using his church, seemingly ordinary Christians, as a display of his multifaceted wisdom, not just to mankind, but to angels and demons too. They're to look at us, the church, and marvel at God's wisdom. And this all began not here in Acts chapter 1, but back on Calvary's cross. Before God dazzles the rulers and authorities in heavenly places with his wisdom through the church, he disarms the evil spirit rulers of this world through the shameful death of his son. The Apostle Paul again, Colossians 2, and you, he writes, who were dead in your trespasses. He's talking to us. And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is all about our salvation, right? But then he pivots. He through these very things, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He is accomplishing that by forgiving you. He's up to something much bigger than us. Everything that Jesus Christ does for us after his life, death, and ascension, and including them, all the daily grace that he shows to us while we wait for him to fulfill his final promise to come back and make all things new, we sang earlier. Everything he does for us isn't just for us. It's a display of his unparalleled wisdom to all created beings. God is conducting a symphony of grace for the cosmos to hear. We're each playing our few notes. 
but together it's producing a sound that is filling heaven and earth. And listen, if you're here and you aren't a Christian, you can become part of this symphony right now. Leave your sins, leave your shame, leave your guilt behind, turn from them, and embrace Jesus Christ. Listen, are you looking for purpose and meaning here this morning? There is no purpose and meaning like being a part of God's church. If you join his church, your life will take on an entirely new meaning, a better one. You will be part of something much bigger than yourself that God is doing in and for this broken world. So give yourself to Jesus Christ and to his church. Friends, do you live with a conscious awareness that God is doing something much bigger with your life than you can possibly perceive? Because our lives are filled with little things, seemingly little things, right? Making a living, going to school, raising families, setting up chairs, singing, taking meals to each other, laughing together, trying our best to share the gospel with our neighbors. It seems like little things. But through each of those little things, God is doing something unspeakably glorious. Your faithful actions in service of Jesus Christ demonstrate that you are part of his church. And the church all Christians for all time. The church is a gift from the Father to the Son being prepared by the Spirit. God is telling the world how much he loves his Son by preparing a bride for him. And his preparations are progressing every day in your life and mine. He's doing it through our waiting and our working. He's doing it by showing mercy to us in our failures He's doing it by empowering our successes. Oh, don't for a minute, don't for a minute think that your life is insignificant. Don't think your life is insignificant. For God is using your life for something much bigger than you can imagine. A cosmic display of his glorious grace. My friends, we live in the space between promise and fulfillment. That's where we live. Space between promise and fulfillment. We're waiting for many things, but most of all, we're waiting for the greatest promise ever to be fulfilled. We're waiting for Christ to return and all the good that will come with him on that day. Unlike the apostles, we have not seen Jesus, yet we love him. And our love for him is not misplaced. And though waiting tempts us to think that our faith might be misplaced, the record that we have here reminds us that it is not. Oh, this morning, may Jesus Christ hold your attention. May he hold your attention. May he keep your trust even while he has you waiting. And may, may we all hold fast to his promises. They all will come true. Let's pray. Lord, none of our waiting is an accident. 
Because it's not an accident, none of our waiting is wasted. So I pray that you would help us to see the glory in the ordinary of our lives while we live between promise and fulfillment. Would you keep our eyes fixed on you? May we treasure your promises. May we hold fast to you in faith, the one who laid down his life for us and was raised again to give us new life. May we live out our lives in you and for you. Thank you, Lord, for sending your spirit, for we live on the other side of the sending of your spirit, your spirit who is with us here working even this morning. May he help us to hold fast to you. And in the end, we know and we will be convinced that it was you all along who was holding fast to us. And so in that great reality, we hope, we persevere, and we continue to labor. May we labor on in hope. For we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.